Thanks be to God. Thank you, Susan. <clears throat> Good morning. All that feedback that you heard, that was me, so sorry. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we acknowledge that you are the source of all knowledge and wisdom, that you are the giver of all good gifts, that everything we have comes from your gracious hand, us into uh, images of your Son. So we would pray this morning that, uh, Father, you would, uh, what we know not, <clears throat> that what we know not, you would teach us, and that what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, this is a, getting off to a good start. <laughs> Maybe it'll be short today if I can't talk. <clears throat> no amens. All right. Okay, good. <laughs> we are um, sort of at the tail end or coming towards the tail end of a series that we began at the beginning of the year on our um, mission and our vision. Um, we began, uh, well, let me, let me start with this. The mission of, uh, of Remedy Church. Our Lord Jesus Christ commissions us to glorify the Father by making disciples as we go into the world, gather into the church, and teach the church to obey his commands by the Spirit of God. So three aspects to our mission statement, going and gathering and teaching. We spent some time going through the, the going portion, um, looking at different parts of Scripture and different aspects of what it means to be a going church. We did the same thing for, um, for gathering. And then when we came to teaching, it uh, seemed good to us to spend some time teaching. Uh, so we, uh, we chose uh, one epistle, the epistle to the Galatians, and thought we would model what the apostles' teaching would, would have been like um, by using this, particular, this one particular book. So that's what we've been doing over these past few weeks, spending some time in the gospel, uh, not the gospel, in the, in the epistle to the Galatians, written by Paul to these churches in Galatia. Um, just to kind of get us back up to speed, uh, uh, to where we are, um, as you know, uh, Susan read from the, the second half of, uh, of the third chapter, so that's going to be our text for this morning. But just sort of as a review, um, Paul and Barnabas had gone on a, on a missionary journey, had spent some time in, um, in Galatia there in the, pro the Roman province of Galatia planting churches. Um, and when they were done, they returned to Antioch. It seems that not long after they returned that others came um, the, to, to Galatia and began preaching what Paul calls uh, a different gospel. Uh, actually, he says it's uh, not a Galatia by telling them that, that the gospel is good, but they need to do something more in order to be accepted by God. Um, we call these folks the Judaizers because they are telling the people of Galatia that it's, it's good to believe in Jesus, but if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to also follow the Mosaic law, particularly, particularly in the area of, of circumcision. So Paul comes right out of the gate telling them that he is astonished that they are deserting this, this gospel, the, the grace of Christ. 
And then he, he pronounces these anathemas on the people who have come. He says, if, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, the one that, that he and Barnabas came and taught, let him be accursed. And then he goes on to, to build a case for what he is saying. He tells them that the gospel that he preached to them was not his gospel. In fact, it wasn't the gospel of any man. It was a gospel that he received through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to tell them that when he eventually made his way to Jerusalem, that he was accepted by the other apostles there, that they, that they validated that the gospel he was preaching was the, was the one and only. It was eatable. He tells this story about how when Peter came to Antioch, he was, he was eating with the, with the Gentiles. He was, he was fellowshipping with them. And then when others came from Jerusalem, they, as he said, they, they came from James. He calls these people the circumcision party. He says that, that, that hip, hypocritically, Peter drew back and he no longer fellowshiped with the Gentiles as he had been doing before. And he says, I opposed Peter to his face. I called Peter, <laughs> you know, one of the pillars of the church, the, you know, one of the inner circle of, of, of Jesus himself. He says, I opposed him to his face because he was behaving, he was acting in a way that was antithetical to the gospel that we preached. And then he goes on and he begins to build this foundation, how, how uh, it's not through the law that we are justified, that we are justified by faith. This is uh, verses 15 through uh, 15 and 16 of chapter 2. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners, yet we know, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You get the point. It's only through faith. Works of the law are meaningless. There is, they are not commending you to God. If you, if you try to, to, to gain favor with God through works of the law, you're going to fail miserably. It's an it's a act of futility. And then this very famous verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus gave himself, that he paid the price for our sins, the price that we were unable to pay. The, he, he perfectly fulfilled the law in a way that we were unable to do it. And then he kicks off chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. He's just, he's a, as he said, he's, he's astounded. He's, he's astonished that they would so quickly turn from the gospel that they had embraced, that they had received. And he asks them this. He says, did you, did, you receive, uh, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or with hearing by faith? Obviously, the answer is it was by faith that they received the Spirit. He says this, know then it is those who have know then that it is that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. He begins to bring in Old Testament references. He's talked about his experience and, and their experience, and now he's going back into scripture to, to prove his point. He says that Abraham himself was justified by faith. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Talks about the promises that were made to the patriarchs. And then he says this. This is right at the very end of the passage we looked at last week. In Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
So it is clearly Paul's position that it is by faith alone, by grace alone, that we are, uh, that we find favor with God, that the law is useless. And he goes on with that point through here, through the end of the chapter. He's going to make these, this, this comparison, this contrast between the law and the, the promise, the, the covenantal promises that, that God made to Abraham. He begins in verse 15. This adds to it once it's been ratified. So he's appealing to their knowledge of how the legal system works. If there's a covenant that two men make between each other, two people make between each other, those covenants are supposed to be set in stone. Once they're agreed upon, once they are ratified, you, you can't come behind it and then, and then annul it or declare it void or even make changes to it. Now, I, you know, we, we grew up, I, I grew up in 20th, 21st century America. I, I don't know if that's so true for us. It seems like um, often the, the maxim for us is, you know, promises. They're made to be broken, right? Uh, I can't remember what the source is. So we're we describe promises as, as pie crust promises, easily made, easily broken. Is that Mary Poppins? Thanks, honey. Thanks. My pop culture reference failed me, but Shelly's here to help. Um, yeah, it's, I feel like that's the way we sort of view contracts or covenants in our culture, but in, at least ideally, in an idealized sense, that's the way covenants are supposed to work. He's saying that covenants between men are supposed to be set in stone. Once ratified, they don't change. What he's be voided. If there are, and he's, he's using this as an example from the lesser to the greater, what he's really saying is if there are covenants made between men, that can't be broken, how much more would a covenant that is established by God be unbreakable? In fact, that's what he says next. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, it's got that passive voice there. The promises were made to Abraham. Well, who were the ones, who was the one who made these promises? Well, it was God. God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, and those promises were not to be broken. Those promises they continue. Once made, they continue. They, they, once ratified, they are, they are not to be annulled or added to. And he says, it was made, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Um, what were these promises? When we talk about the promises that God made to Ab Abraham, what's, what's Paul talking about here? Well, if, if you just flip back uh, Put, put your eyes up just a little bit above where we were before, where we are now. Um, in, in verse 8, it says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's in verse 8 of the same chapter. That's one of the promises that God made to Abraham. That promise is found in Genesis chapter 12 when, when God tells, <clears throat> tells Abraham to, to leave his home and to go to this place that he's going to show him. And he, he pronounces on him these blessings and he makes this promise, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We heard another promise in our, in our call to worship this morning as, uh, as Chris read through chapter 15 of, uh, of Genesis. This is a this is amazing scene where where God unilaterally commits Himself by covenant to Abraham. It's it, it's sort of an odd scene for us as as these animals are laid out, cut in two, and then this flaming torch passes between the pieces. That was an ancient covenant ratification. 
And the, and, the, and the interesting thing about it, the remarkable thing about it is, is that Abraham does not pass through the pieces. Abraham is one of the covenant partners. And were this a human covenant, both of the covenant partners would have passed through the pieces, committing themselves, ratifying the covenant. In this case, Abraham does not pass through the pieces. Only God, represented by this flaming torch, passes through the pieces. What is that? Loyalty involved. That's why it cannot be broken. Were there a human partner, there'd be some frailty involved. Perhaps there'd be an opportunity for, it to, for this covenant to be broken, but God unilaterally commits himself. It's a, it's a covenant that is unilateral and, and eternal and unbreakable. The covenants have two main components. There's this idea of land. You see this as you see the covenant that's give, covenant with Abraham that is that is then um, ratified or or, or further um, committed to the other patriarchs. There's this idea of land, but there's also this idea of of blessing. That the covenant is given to man, given to Abraham and his offspring, so that the rest of the world will receive blessing. So it's not a blessing necessarily just for Abraham and just for Abraham and his offspring. It's, it's primarily an, an outward covenant, a covenant by which all of the world is, is, uh, is blessed. And then Paul makes this very interesting exegetical argument. He says this, uh, again, verse 16, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about this exegetical argument is that this word offspring, um, the, the, both in the Greek and the, and the word that's translated from Hebrew, um, when, when, the, when the promise is made in the Old Testament, they're what, they're what are, it is a singular word, it is a, but, it's, but it's what's known as a collective singular you know, and we're familiar with these kind of things in English. When a, when, a, a, when a farmer goes out to sow his seed, that word seed is a singular word, but we know it refers to a whole bunch of seeds. So that's the same kind of thing here. In fact, Paul uses this word offspring in a collective sense elsewhere. So he's making not so much a, 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 a grammatical argument here as he's making a theological argument. He's saying, yes, when the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, there would be many, 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 in fact, sands on the sea, stars in the sky, numbers of offspring that came from Abraham. That was one of the sticking points that Abraham had with God. You know, God, I don't even have one child. How are you going to give me offspring that are, that are innumerable? Of course, God solves that problem miraculously by giving, them, by giving uh, Abraham and Sarah Isaac. And there were many, many progeny, many, many offspring that came from Abraham. But Paul's making the theological point. Even though the promise was made to these offspring, it was, it was primarily made to just a single offspring. And that single offspring was, was Christ himself. I think that's because we see the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham most clearly in Christ himself. The idea that, that all of the world would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham doesn't really find its fulfillment in the human offspring of Abraham, the fully human offspring of Abraham, finds its fulfillment in the God-man, 
in Christ. When Christ came, he came to fulfill those promises that were made to Abraham. I think that's what he's saying when he says this, this promise refers to just to one, and that one is, is Christ. Now, it seems perhaps that, that Paul he recognizes that what he just said might be uh, slightly confusing. So, so he, he seeks to clarify. I, I, I love this. He says, this is what I mean. <laughs> In case you didn't get it, let me, let me clarify. This is what I mean. The, the, the law, which came 430 years afterward, 430 years after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So what's he saying there? He's saying, by way of clarification, that the promise precedes the law. The promise has priority over the law, both in its significance and in its, its place in history. It came before. He says 430 years before. I, th he, I think he's referring there to, to Exodus 1240, where it talks about the people of Israel spending 430 years in the land of Egypt. You know, it's kind of hard to say exactly what he's referring to. Uh, if that's the case, then, then he's, he's really, he's dating the, the promise perhaps to the very end of Genesis. Joseph re, kind of restates the, the, the covenant when he says, I, I, when you go back to the land, I, I know you're going back to the land. I want you to take my bones with you when you go. Because the land that God has promised to you, you're going to go back and, and reclaim it. So in a way, that's a, a restatement of the covenant, that, uh, the promises that God has made. And he says, he says that the promise, uh, the, the promise, the covenant was ratified by God. It's ratified by God. He says, the, uh, the, the law does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by by God, so as to make the promise void. In other words, because this promise was a promise that came from God Himself, we know that it is sure. It can't be voided. It can't be annulled. It is. It is. It is sure for all time. And the fact that this other covenant came after doesn't void it. Then he says this in verse 18. Uh, he says. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If the inheritance, the inheritance that came by means of this covenant, if it comes about because of law-keeping, then, it, then it, it doesn't, then the promise is, is somehow voided. And he just said that's not possible. The promise that God made is forever. It's eternal. So he says you can't have both. I think what he's saying is that there's this mutual exclusivity. Either you're going to be adherence, adherent to the promise or an adherent to the law. You can't do both. He says, if the inheritance come by, comes by law, then it's as if the promise has been voided. It is no longer coming by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now... I submit to you that that is very, very good news. That, that statement is, is gospel, my friends. Because God gave it to Abraham by a promise, we are no longer under the law. In fact, we never were really under the law for justification, for a right standing with God, because, because we never had the opportunity, we never had the chance, there, there was never any way that we were going to actually be able to to uh, adhere to the law. 
I mean, look at, look up back up again. This is just the, uh, in a previous passage here at the beginning, uh, back at verse 10. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, that's sobering. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So what is, what's Paul saying here? He's saying, if you want to be under the law, you know, you're welcome to do it, but you're not going to be able to keep it. And the result of that is that you're going to be cursed. You're cursed if you don't abide by all things written in the book of the law. Well, no one has ever done that. No one has ever abided by all things written in the book of the law and done them. No, no, no one but Christ has ever perfectly lived under the law. So when he says, but God gave the inheritance by a promise, that's gospel. That's good news. This promise that was given, as he says, 430 years before, it, it still stands it stands in antithesis to the law. It stands mutually exclusive to the law and what the law requires. This law, this, this promise is a promise of inheritance. It's a, it's a covenant, a covenant that is unilateral. God himself uh, obligates, God obligates himself to. It's, it's, a, it's an eternal covenant, an eternal promise. And it's a promise that's, etern uh, that's universal. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So that's what he begins with. He begins with this, this statement of the, the priority of the promise. That the promise came first and the promise stands over and above this other thing that came later that we call the law. And then he asks this question, sort of a rhetorical question. He's going to ask it and then answer it. He says in verse 19, well, why then the law? You know, if the promise is so much better, if the promise is superior, if the promise has priority, then why have a law at all? Then he answers his own question. He says, to whom the promise had been made. So one of the reasons for the law, he gives, actually, he's going to give several here. He says, one of the reasons of the law, one of the reasons the law was given is because the law reveals sin. It, it puts our sin in stark relief, if you will. You know, up against the light of God, the, the darkness of our sin shows out clearly, reveals our sin, and it also reveals the futility of trying to live in a way that follows the law. God gave this long list of things that we are to do. You know, if you ever read through the book of Leviticus, you might have, as you're reading through it, or by the time you get to the end, you might say, well, nobody could ever do all of that. Nobody, ever, no, nobody could ever keep all of those rules. Nobody could follow all these things perfectly. Well, yeah, that's the point. The re one of the reasons the law was given was to show you that you couldn't keep it. And that trying to keep it was completely futile. You know, you're just wasting your time. That's one of the reasons that the law is given. It's, it's because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. And then this, this glorious until, until the offspring, who's the offspring? Well, that's Jesus. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So it was as if the law was there as a placeholder. 
just waiting for the time when Jesus would come. Uh, and then he says this. Uh, uh, we're not going to spend a, a great deal of time here. Uh, it, it says it was put in, it, the, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. An, intermer an intermediary replies, implies more than one, but God is one. Now, uh, let me just tell you, as I was reading some commentaries on this passage, um, words like cryptic and mystifying were used. This is always an encouragement, isn't it? I mean, yeah. These great scholars read this passage and they go, well, that's interesting. I wonder what that means. It's rather, it's rather cryptic. I'm, I'm mystified by that. I, I, I don't know that it's... Sure, it's a little bit strange. I mean, this idea that the, uh, that the, uh, the, that the law was put in place through angels, it, it's not... It, there's some scriptural, scriptural um, basis for that. Um, this is Deuteronomy 33.2. This is Moses' final blessing on Israel just before he dies. He says this in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So that seems to be there. At Sinai, there were, there were ten thousands of holy ones. It seems to be a reference there to angels. It may be, that may be what Paul is referring to here. Um, there are other references, um, uh, New Testament references. Uh, Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2.2, 2, they both mention something uh, that seems to be at least to be an allusion to an angelic agency in the, in the giving of the law. Um, and then he says that there was an intermediary involved. Um, it was put in place through angels by an intermedi intermediary. An intermediary—that's hard to say. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So I think the inter intermediary that's being referred to here is probably Moses. Not entirely clear. Some commentators had different ideas, um, but it seems as though this idea that there was an angelic agency with an human intermediary that was part of this giving of the law and then he says but God is one I think this is his point as cryptic and mystifying as it may be I think again because his point here is that the, that the, the, the promise is is has priority and that the law is inferior to the promise I think he's saying the same thing here. He's saying that there, it, it took like this committee, if you will, uh, angelic agency and a human intermediary. All of those things were, all of these different elements were involved in the giving of the law. The giving of the promise was just God to Abraham. God is one. It was just God to Abraham. Again, I think he's giving this, giving in this idea that the, that the promise is better. The promise is better than the law because the promise was just a one-on-one -on -one deal between God and Abraham that found its fulfillment in, uh, in the God-man, Jesus. Um, it reminded me of what Paul said early on in the, in, in, in the book, back in chapter 1, when he talked about the, the, the gospel that he was preaching not being a, man, a gospel that came from man, but a gospel that came one-on-one -on -one revelation between Jesus Christ himself. There was this, again, this one-on-one -on -one revelation between Jesus and Paul. Some, again, a little cryptic, a little mystifying in the way that happened. We don't really know. But somehow, Paul testified that he received this revelation of this gospel directly from, from Jesus, from, well, from God himself. So I think that's what he's trying to say here in this, in this cryptic and mystifying uh, little section. Put in place through angels with an intermediary. 
but God is one. The promise came from God himself. So he continues with this idea of the, of the, of the inferiority of the law. And then he asks another question, another rhetorical question in, in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? In other words, because the promise is better, because it's superior, is it somehow in opposition to the law? Or is the law somehow in opposition to the promise? And in a very Pauline fashion, he says, certainly not. May it never be. No. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if there was a law that God had given that somehow we as human beings would be able to follow perfectly, well, then that would have been great. Perfect law-keeping would be the same as righteousness. You know, if that were possible, that God could give us a law, I, mean, I don't know, maybe it would have just had maybe just, I don't know, not 600 plus parts, maybe just 10. Oh, wait a second. He did give us just 10, and we couldn't keep those either. He's saying, hypothetically, if it were possible for us to be given a law that we could keep, then our righteousness would be through the law. But that isn't possible. We are unable to keep the law. Perfect law-keeping would be righteousness, but it's not something that we're able to do. He says, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when the law was given, sin was revealed in its starkness. And then we're just waiting. We know we're sinners. We know we're unable to keep the law. We know that we can't find righteousness through the law. So we're, we're waiting, sort of on tiptoe, with bated breath, waiting for the one to come who is going to take care of our sin problem. We are, we're in prison, Paul says. We're, we're kept captive to this futility, trying to keep the law, but unable to do it, and waiting for in Jesus Christ. Um, August, Augustine puts it this way. He says, God commands what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to seek from him. Let me say that again. God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. He, the law came in just to reveal our sin and to, to show us what, what we were unable to do. But it gives us eyes to see the one who is coming. We're seeking the coming of the one who is going to be the fulfillment of the promise. That one is, is Jesus. This is... Um, from, I, I, I mentioned this book last time uh, I preached from uh, uh, this book, uh, Galatians for You by, by Tim Keller. I um, wanted to read to you just a little bit from that. I think he puts it well. He says, this is the purpose of the law. It shows us that we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power, requiring a rescue. The law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. In fact, as we see God's standards and try and fail to keep them, the, God, the law shows us that we do not have that power. Righteousness cannot come by the law. Ironically, if we think we can be righteous by the law, we have missed the main point of the law. 
In summary, Paul says, the law shows us our sin so that what was promised might be given to those who believe. The law does its work to lead us toward recognition of our need for salvation by grace. The law then does not oppose the promise of salvation by grace through Christ, but rather supports it by pointing out to us our need of it. So that's the purpose of the law, or at least one purpose of the law. He, he goes on with, a, with perhaps just a couple more. He uses these, um, these two metaphors for the law. Uh, this is verse 23. Now before faith came, Faith came in and through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He's already told us that. We were in prison. This is just another way of saying that. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So there are these two metaphors. One he's already used, this idea of, a, of being imprisoned as if we are being watched by a guard. And then he sorts of, sort of switches it just a little bit and says we're, not only was the law our guard, but our law was, the law was our, our guardian. And there are, different, there are nuances there, aren't there? When you think of a guard, you think of being in prison, you think of something that's um, uh, punitive, right? You're being punished. You're being held in prison for something that you've done wrong. When you think of a guardian, this idea of a guardian here, um, others, I think maybe the, even the KJV translates this word as schoolmaster. So there's an, there's an instructive quality here. Not only were we held under guard, but we were, we were be, being given instruction. The law was given to us for our instruction, uh, to, to open our eyes to what it is that Christ was going to do. Um, the, the, and we see that in these two, again, these, these two glorious untils. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And the law was our guardian until Christ came. See, the hope of what was to come. That, that, there were, that these two untils, until the coming faith, until, uh, what, I think they're just parallel ways of saying the same thing. The coming faith would be revealed until Christ came. It was when Christ came that the coming faith was revealed. He says, we were, we were being both guarded and we were being instructed by the law until Christ came, until the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham came in Christ. Again, uh, a, little more, a little more Keller. He says it this way. Law and grace work together in Christian salvation. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they'll not admit the seriousness of their sin. They won't listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. If we think that we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. The law shows us as we really are, and so the law points us to see Christ as he really is, our Savior. The one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. The law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to him. So there we see uh, the purpose of the law. 
And then Paul returns again to the promise, the promise of, of an inheritance. He says this, uh, starting in verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are, you're, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There is this transition here. The idea of a guardian would be, uh, culturally, it would have been someone from the outside who was brought in by the parents to provide instruction to their children. There's this sort of a, you know, if you think of the, the stern schoolmaster, the, the, the sort of the prototypical stern schoolmaster who was, you know, walking around with the, with the ruler in their hand waiting to, to smack you in the back of the hand if you did something wrong. Um, that's, the, that's the picture we're seeing here with this guardian, providing instruction, but it's, but it's, not, it's not a parental instruction. It's, it's a more impersonal instruction. It's not, it's not part, they're not part of the family. And Paul now says there's this transition that's happened. But now that faith has come, again, shorthand for saying now that Jesus has come, now that, now that the offspring of Abraham has come, we are now not no longer under a guardian, but we are sons, sons and daughters. We're, we're part of the family. We've been, we've been brought in by God through faith. We have been brought into the family of God. We are now God's children. And then he says this, and again, maybe this one's a little bit cryptic and, and mystifying. I, I, we'll, we'll, let's talk about it. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I don't know about you, th th there's something about that that's a little jarring. He's been talking about faith. He's been talking about the coming of the offspring of Abraham. He's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about uh, salvation by faith, by the grace of God. And then, he, um, and then he throws in this baptism thing, sort of out of the blue. This is the only place in the, in the book that he uses this word, by the way, uh, talking about baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, there's this idea of, of putting on. It's a metaphor that, that Paul uses um, uh, in, in a number of different places. In Romans chapter 13, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, he, puts, he has this idea of, of putting on or being, or being clothed with Christ. But he, here he links it with, with baptism. He says, as many, of you, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So uh, what, what is it that he's trying to say here? Why does he bringing up baptism at this point? Why does he say that instead of as many of you as have received Christ by faith? That would seem to make more sense in the context. He would say as many of you as have received Christ by faith have, have put on Christ. But he says as many of you as been, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, this, is from, this is from Romans chapter 3. Paul writes this, um, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptizing. We too might walk in newness of life. So here we have this connection between baptism and identifying with Christ in his death and, and, his, and his burial and then his, his resurrection. All of that is, is, is wrapped up in this idea of baptism. So when we put on Christ, when we are clothed with Christ, we are identifying with him. I think, I think that's part of it. We are, um, we're, we're, it it's, it's an idea of the relationship, the, the righteousness that comes through faith because of our relationship with Christ and being clothed in him. 
I think there might be one other reason. Again, this is the only place he mentions it here. Um, this, is, this is a little bit of conjecture. It seems to me that Paul wouldn't have just dropped this in had he not previously given the Galatians some instruction about this. Can't prove it, but I think that's, that's, that makes sense to me. That when he was there and he was teaching them, he taught them about baptism. And I think one of the things he taught them about baptism is what we see in, uh, in Colossians chapter 2. When Paul says this, In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here we see Paul making a connection between Christian baptism and circumcision. Now, what was it that the Judaizers came to Galatia preaching? Jesus is great. Be circumcised. I think, perhaps, I'm not, again, I can't necessarily prove this, but it seems to me that he might have, Paul had already given them instruction about how baptism was a replacement under the new covenant for old covenant circumcision. I think perhaps what he's doing here is just giving them a very subtle reminder of that fact. Contra the Judaizers, they were not... Uh, uh, they, they didn't need to follow the law. The, their, their baptism, their, their putting on of Christ in this metaphor of baptism was a replacement for this circumcision. They didn't need to be circumcised. Uh, again, can't necessarily prove that, but that, uh, that, that kind of makes some sense to me. Then he says this, In Christ you are all sons of God through faith, as many of you as put on, have put on as many of you have, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then this glorious statement, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's this, this idea of, of being part of God's family and, and being united with Christ now overflows into our, our horizontal relationships. That all these barriers that Paul mentions, uh, cultural barriers and class barriers and, and gender barriers, that they've all been broken down in the coming of Christ. As you have been baptized into Christ, as you have put on Christ, as you are all now sons and daughters of God through faith, these barriers they no longer exist. No Jew, nor Greek, no slave, nor free, no male or female. We are all one. We're all united. We're all together under and in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are all partakers of the promise that was given to Abraham. It's a genetical thing again because earlier he said there was one offspring and it was Jesus. And now he's saying, if you are by, through faith in Christ, you are, if are, you are Christ. Now you, you, all of you are now offspring of Abraham. That, that collective singular has been expanded now to include not just Jesus, but by our identification with him, because we are in him, because we are united with him, we too are offspring of Abraham, and we are now beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham, promises of blessing and being 
a blessing. Yeah, this, this superior promise, the promise that takes priority over the law, the law that had a purpose to reveal our sin to us and to show us that we were unable to keep the law and that we, our only hope was in Christ Jesus and faith in him. That, that comes to its culmination because as we put on Christ, as we are united with him, we are united with him in this inheritance that is to come. It's a glorious, glorious truth, and it's, it's very, very good news. So, um, in closing, a, a couple of questions, um, some implications of this. I guess question number one, are you an heir? Are you a partaker of the promise to, to somehow commend yourself to God? You think, I can, if I work hard enough, if I, if I walk a straight enough line, God will be pleased with me, and then I'll, then, and maybe somehow I can receive these promises, promises that were given to Abraham. I just tell you, that's, that's, a, that's a fool's game. It's not possible. There is no way that you will be able to keep the law. Because the only way the law can be kept in a way that is pleasing to God is if the law is kept perfectly. I can't do it. You can't do it. No person in human history has ever been able to do it except for Jesus. So, I, 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 would, I would recommend that you don't take that path. I would recommend that you accept the promises that have been given to Abraham through Jesus. That, that you receive him by faith. That you clothe yourself in him. That you, that you receive his forgiveness. That you cl are clothed then in the righteousness that comes through him. As he pays the price for your sin and gives you his righteousness in exchange. And if, and if, that, if, if that's you, if you've already found that, then my, my, I guess the question would be, uh, is, to what extent are you still a functional law keeper? Uh, you might have heard the phrase, functional atheist. I think that refers to maybe all of us from time to time. We live in such a way that there is no God. Even though we believe he's there, we just act, we live in a way that, he's, that it seems like he's not. Well, I'm using that phrase in a similar way. Functional law keeper. We believe that there's no value in trying to keep the law, but we live in a way as if there is. And I think I'm, here I'm just talking to myself. I am a, I'm, I'm a first-class rule follower, you know, second child, uh, compliant kid, you know. I, I, give, me, give me a list of rules, and I'll check those things off. I'll follow them as best I can, you know. I'll, I want to I I know what the expectations are, and I will, I will follow them. I think far too often that makes me into a, a functional law keeper. I believe all this stuff I just said, but somehow in my head it, it gets turned around and rules in order for God to be pleased with me. As if he is not viewing me through the righteousness of Christ. As if he has not already declared me justified. As, he is, as if he has not already forgiven all of my sins. I believe all that, but I, sometimes far too often I think I, I live in a way that, that seems like I don't. And that may be true of you. I don't know. I'm guessing probably for 
most of you, maybe all of you, to an extent, that's probably true. So my encouragement to you, my encouragement to myself, is, is, to, is to continue to work to root out those, those aspects of me, my flesh, to continue to want to put myself and the law in priority over these promises that God gave. And not just rest. And, and realize that as I rest in his promises, I'm, gonna, I'm going to willingly and joyfully do, do, work to do things that please him. But they're in the right priority. It's because of what he, of what he has done that I, that I work to do things that are pleasing to him. I don't work to do pleasing things that are pleasing to him as if in some way I can, I can gain his favor. Again, I think that's too often true of me, maybe of you as well. And my prayer for myself is that I would live less that way and live more and more and more in light of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel is not just for salvation. It's for, it's for living. So live in the gospel. Live in the light of the promises that were made to Abraham, fulfilled by Jesus Christ on our behalf live in that glorious truth. Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we're so grateful. This undeserved favor that you give to us, this, this grace that came through the coming of Christ. It's, it's glorious grace. It's you know, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Lord, I, I'm grateful for that grace, for the, for the grace that comes uh, through faith in Christ. Lord, I, I pray for myself and I pray for my friends here that we would more and more, day by day, live and walk in that grace knowing that, that, the, that the overflow of that will be living in a way that's pleasing to you. It's, it's really the only way that we can live in a way that's pleasing to you if we live in light of the gospel, the gospel of your grace. So, um, Father, continue to change us, continue to, 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 to transform us, Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. We know that it is in gazing upon him that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So give us that grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.